Hope you enjoyed part one of our AVA stories on the Ryan Russillo podcast. If you missed that, don't worry. You can listen to number two first and then number one. You'll be able to keep up. Uh, as we said in the first one, the ABA from 1967 to 1976 in part two, we'll have Artis Gilmore, who was one of the most feared men in the league and considered the strongest. Rod Thorne, who was a coach early on and had a deal with some of the more unique characters. And I'm even going to ask him, too, when he was running the Bulls, did they actually try to trade Jordan, the pick for Jordan, for Julius Irving when he was with the Sixers? And then Bob Costas, who doctored his audition tape to get a job where he ended up calling Spirit of St. Louis games with the owner's wife. That's all coming up. Part two of ABA Stories. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. Rod Thorne's a Hall of Famer. He's done just about everything in basketball, including playing in college, years in the pros, the second pick in the 1963 draft in the NBA through 71, coach for the Sonics. But then in 1973, Rod, your ABA career started. How did that start? What was that call like? Well, uh, I had been an assistant coach, Ryan, with the new uh, New York Nets, and we had played uh, the St. Louis Spirits in the uh, uh, first first round of the playoffs uh, the previous year. And we had beaten them during the regular season 10 consecutive times. We beat them the first game of the playoffs. And then they proceeded to win the next four. Uh, So they had eliminated us, and uh, their coach uh, resigned. And I was offered the job and, uh, and ended up taking it. Uh, Harry Weltman, uh, who was at that time the uh, GM of the Spirits, uh, we had had several conversations, and uh, so I ended up taking the job. So you had had initially been an assistant, though, correct? When when you were with the Nets, right? Uh, that is correct. Uh, Kevin Lockery uh, was a terrific coach, was our head coach, and we had won one championship and then uh, lost to the Spirits the next year. So I had been an assistant coach for two years. So Julius Serving had been in the league two years with the Squires at a UMass. Um, the great thing about reading about Julius is that it it was all this doubt, like Yankee Conference, UMass. Like you got to be kidding me! This guy can't be this good. And then certain people that had run across him were like, "This is." A, there's a story where Al McGuire is losing to him at Marquette, going, "Who the hell is this guy?" And one of the guys in the bench is like, "He's from New York." And McGuire's like, "We get the players from New York. Like, what, what the hell's going on here?" Um, what was your first like reaction of hearing about the legend of of Doctor J, and then actually getting to see him in person? 
Well, you know, Ryan, I, I was living in Seattle before I took the job with uh, my career just ended and, and uh, as a player and uh, before I took the job with the Nets. And I had heard of Irving uh, because, uh, uh, you know, his – uh, his legend was already growing, even though he wasn't in the NBA and he was in the, you know, in the ABA. Uh, but all of the street people were talking about Julius Serving and what a great, great athlete he was. And, and, uh, you know, how, you know, he was as good as anybody, you know, we kept hearing that none of us believed it because he was, you know, he wasn't in the NBA, you know, we, we want to see it in the NBA. So, when I came, when I took the job and came to New York and then started watching this guy play, he was unbelievable. The things he could do athletically, uh, I had not seen. Uh, the hanging in the air, the jumping from the foul line, the jumping way over the square. Um, he could just do things athletically that, uh, that nobody else could do. And he had a hand that was about one and a half times as big as mine. Uh, he had like an extra digit in his fingers. His hand was so big. And he could, uh, I've seen him a hundred times, go to the sideline and grab a ball with one hand. Like you were, you and I would grab a softball. He could grab a basketball like that and pull it back with one hand. Uh, because of the ridiculously big hands he had. Uh, but at that time, you know, probably at his peak physically, uh, he was unbelievable. I think a today's star in the league, and, and Dr. J was was certainly that, you know, he, he transcending just basketball, like the cool nickname, the marketing part of it, which the ABA was really, I think, ahead of the NBA at that time. How surprised were you in such a wild league that he carried himself like he, he's a 30-year, you know, a guy that's been a vet for 10 years because that seemed to be a very consistent thing. Not only the, obviously, everybody's really impressed with his physical abilities, but his, his the way he carried himself as a leader at a very young age. Uh, was remarkable. Um, he, of all of, of all of the great players I've been around, and I've been around a lot of them, he was the best teammate. He thought of his teammates. You know, he was the ABA. Wherever we went, we had big crowds. You know, there, there weren't the, most of the games, the crowds were very, very small. But when Dr. J came to, down, to town, everybody who knew anything about basketball would come to the games. So he actually carried the league. And he did it with a plum. He did it with class. Uh, 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 again, of all the players I've been around, the great ones, he was the best teammate of any of them, as well as being one of the best players I've ever, you know, ever been around. But he just thought about team, was about team, and players love playing with him. Yeah, I'll. I can't wait to get to some of the St. Louis stuff as well. But like, here you are. You know, you're you're still young, but you know, you're this top pick. 
you make it about a decade as a player. You're, you're on a staff there in Seattle. How wild was it to you that, okay, because I know you thought about becoming a lawyer. You, you were finishing up grad school out there, and it was kind of like a last-minute thing, and you're talking with your wife. But once you're in it, and there aren't crowds at a lot of places, the ownership is changing constantly. Teams are moving all over the place. Some guys are just not even showing up. How wild was that experience in comparison to something a bit more buttoned up in the, in the NBA? Uh, it was crazy. Uh, you know, from week to week, there were always uh, rumors that the league was folding. Certain teams were, you know, were going to fold. Uh, I can remember in, uh, when I was coaching in St. Louis and we're getting ready to play Utah and they fold. So who's going to be the coach? Yeah, Tom Nasaki was the coach, a very accomplished coach in Utah. I'm a new coach in uh, St. Louis. Is he going to be the coach? Am I going to be the coach? Uh, uh, it was crazy uh, because it was constant. You know, every week there was there were rumors. Every day there was something going on, and it most likely wasn't about what was happening on the court, but what was happening in the courts or uh, or, or was happening away from the game. It, it was it was crazy. So you get the call from St. Louis. I, I think you're about 33, 34 here. What went into the yeah. decision? I mean, obviously, if you're coaching, you want to be a head coach at some point. Take us through that timeline of events. Well, the, the year before when we won the championship, my first year with, uh, with the Nets, I had interviewed uh, for the Kentucky Colonel job that uh, Hubie Brown uh, ended up uh, getting. And at that time, his wife's name was Ellie, and Ellie did part of the interviewing, uh, Ellie Brown. And, uh, uh, but anyway, I came out second for that job, didn't get it. So I was hopeful of becoming a, you know, a head coach. And then the next year when St. Louis beat us in the playoffs, St. Louis had some very, very good players, you know, Marvin Barnes, uh, uh, and, uh, Maurice Lucas, uh, you know, where our starting forwards, which were pretty daggone good. And uh, so I, I thought they had a, a terrific opportunity to be very, very good and uh, ended up uh, uh, getting offered a job and, you know, and taking the job. So you get to St. Louis. Um, didn't you have Moses for a stretch there, too, as well? Well, when Utah folded. <laughs> right. So it wasn't got, the full season. but We got Moses, who had a broken foot, by the way, at the time and couldn't play. Uh, Ron Boone was another good player that we picked up from Utah at that time. Uh, and we picked up several other players. Uh, Randy Denton was one. It was a decent, uh, you know, a ABA player. Uh, uh, but, uh, yes, <laughs> we did, uh, we did have Moses, uh, you know, for a time, but, but he, he couldn't play. He played one game for me before I got let go. He, he played one game. Uh, because of broken foot. Yeah, I'd heard that he just, the trainers couldn't figure out what was wrong, and he just said, broken foot. Like, he's, there wasn't a long discussion. <laughs> no, <laughs> that, 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 that's funny, because I happened to be in the training room, and the trainer was, you know, in those days, you, you know, you had one trainer, that was it. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a doctor <laughs> to begin with. So the trainer said, the trainer was essentially a guy that, tape ankles that's what the trainer was for you know put band-aids on something uh but you know they, they they weren't like they are today and uh 
Moses was uh, Moses was not very talkative, you know, in those days. And when he did talk, he was hard to understand because because he sort of mumbled. And he was sitting on the training table, and the the trainer's looking at his foot, and the trainer said, uh, "Is this a foot?" And he said, "Foot hurt." And <laughs> didn't hear him, didn't understand him, and the trainer said, "What what?" What, what, what did you say? And he said, foot hurt. And uh, finally we figured out that his foot was bothering him when he couldn't run. <laughs> but uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, Moses, uh, from the time he started, Ryan, he had this incredible will to go get the basketball. And he was, when he was 19 years old, from Petersburg, Virginia, playing in the ABA, the guy was relentless. And over the course of the game, he would wear you out. You know, whoever was trying to to defend him or trying to play against him, he would physically wear them out. And in the fourth quarter, the guy would just go crazy. Was was there any coaching him? I mean, I know you only had him to the game for for that, but I've just... Uh, it, it didn't seem complicated with Moses. Uh, funny story with uh, Moses. When we got Moses, and you know, then he's got a broken foot and he can't play. But we're—I've <laughs> got him out with the second unit, working on our plays. We probably had five plays that had you know some different options to them. Sure. And so we're out working the, you know, working out with the, with the second unit guys and Moses is messing up every play. And what I don't understand at the time is that Moses is very smart and he's doing it on purpose because he, he doesn't want to be out there doing it. And he keeps messing these plays up. So finally it, I figured out I've got to end this some way. How am I going to end this and, and not look like a total putz in front of these other players? And uh, so he just keeps messing them up. And, and I had made the statement that we're going to do this until we do it correctly. And fi- uh, so finally I said, after about 30 minutes, I said, you know, I, I, I looked at my watch and I said, oh, I've, I've got a meeting with the general manager. i got to go, guys, and left. But he would have continued to mess them up because he, that, 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 was, that, that was Moses. And, and, and it wasn't anything malicious at all. It was just that, oh, I, I don't want to do this. This guy's stupid enough <laughs> to make us keep doing this. Okay. <laughs> we'll see where this goes. <laughs> How would you describe yourself at that age as a head coach? Uh, very uh, anxious, very, uh, uh, you know, wanting to do everything perfectly. Uh, uh, you know, very into it from a coaching standpoint. Uh, we're all going to be together and we're all, you know, we're going to, we've got a lot of talent here and we're going to be, uh, we're going to be a very good team. And, uh, you know, they, they're going to follow me because I'm going to, I'm going to do a lot of right things. That type coach. Were you a bit of a hothead? Uh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Very, uh, uh, you know, was an emotional, uh, player, uh, you know, was an emotional person and, uh, yes, 
<laughs> Can you tell us then that the the Wendell Lad, uh, Ladner shoe story? Because um, you were still an assistant when the Nets there were lockery at that point, who'd gotten thrown out of the game. So I know there's different versions of it, but Wendell, Wendell Ladner, who's essentially the Burt Reynolds of the ABA, um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> feel free to go in any direction. Then tell tell us that story or any Wendell ones. Uh, Wendell was Wendell was a. Uh, it was a character number one, very very tough guy, uh, and when he played with Kentucky, he did a pretty good job guarding Dr. J, and he would and, and he would beat him up. You know, he wasn't afraid of anybody. Wendell, he didn't care if he was Julius Serving or Kareem Jabbar, he was going to try to beat you up and would beat you up. So. Uh, He's sitting on the bench. He's out of the game. And uh, he just, you know, he takes his shoe off and throws it on the, throws it out on the floor. And, uh, you know, the referees didn't know what to do. They're looking at him. We, we, you know, everybody thought he was crazy. They didn't know what he was going to do. And uh, it it was hilarious. (laughs) It really was. But what, we ended up trading for Wendell and basically to get him away from Dr. J uh, uh, because we, number one, we were afraid he might hurt him. And, and number two, did a good job, you know, against him. And he didn't play fantastically well for us, but in a couple of big playoff games, he played great because Wendell had no fear. He would shoot the ball every time he touched it. Didn't care if it went in or didn't go in. You know, he always thought the next one would go in. And he had a great heart. You know, the he had a great heart. Uh, just a tough guy. And I can still see the picture uh, in the in the, uh, uh, New York Post when when his his plane went down and he died. And there was a picture of his gym bag with his number on it his net bag uh you know in this picture with with all this carnage there was this picture uh loved the guy because he was that tough uh but he was you didn't know what he was going to do on the court you know plays he 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 didn't run plays (laughs) he would go wherever he you know he'd just go where he wanted to go but uh Tough guy and did a really good job for us. So you're jumping back to St. Louis. Um, I, I have to get the Marvin Barnes stuff here, uh, just so people understand. Some of the younger listeners, I, I was reading in Loose Balls, there's a moment where Bob Costas talks about Barnes after a loss where he had 48 points, and he starts talking to Costas because Costas is the announcer fresh out of Syracuse, early 20s. And Barnes goes, this team doesn't have any any." like connection, you know, we're not a team. No one looks out for each other. Costas is saying like, this is amazing. Like Barnes is revealing some of the, the inner problems of, of this team. And he's really identifying that we're not a team. We're not a team and we need to be more connected and all this stuff. And then Barnes goes, see, I got 48 points with two minutes left to go and nobody passes me the ball to get me to 50. (laughs) So that was Marvin's definition of not being team enough. Uh, Anybody that knows Bad News Barnes and my my family's history back at Providence uh, with the Mullanies and everything too. So you know, I'd heard about him even as a little kid. Um, what 
I'm going to ask you for a bunch of Marvin Barnes stories here, but but how how was it in the beginning and trying to figure out a way to coach him? Uh, then ultimately, what led to probably part of your dismissal too. Marvin was a, a very very talented player, um, a lot like only not quite not as good, but a lot like Bernard King. You know how Bernard would drive and bump you off and shoot that real quick little jumper he had. Marvin had the same type thing, bigger than Bernard, better rebounder, potentially a much better defensive player when he wanted to do it. But he had the potential to be, uh, you know, a 10-time all-star, you know, in the NBA. Marvin was very undisciplined. Uh, in his the way he lived you know he when the game was over you had no idea what he was going to do where he was going what he was going to do I can't tell you all of the uh, different conversations I had with him about you're our best player there are obligations here there's things you need to do and Finally, after, you know, we fined him over $30,000 during during that time for being late. One day, we're practicing at a cathedral in St. Louis, and there was a mirror that you could see the front door when you were standing around midcourt. And I was standing around midcourt. It's like one minute to 10 when practice was going to start. And all of a sudden, I see Marvin out there. He looks at his watch and waits till it's a minute after 10 to come through the door because he wasn't going to be on time because no one was going to tell him he had to be someplace at a certain time. He, 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 he wasn't, he wasn't going to do that. Um, he, he, I remember him telling me that, you know, I was on him constantly, you know, to try to get him to, yeah, you know, to do the things that your best player needed to do. And so one day he said to me, you know something, Coach, why are you on me all the time? I'm going to clean this up because uh, there were a bunch of profanities in it. We don't he have said, to. He said, I give you 24 and 12 every night. What about these other blankety blanks? Why, why aren't you on them all the time? Uh that was the, 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 the kind of attitude he had, uh, Ryan. He didn't it, – it was all about what can I do when the game's over. It wasn't about how can I get better. Uh, and, you know, when he came to the NBA after, you know, when Detroit picked him up to come to the NBA when the ABA folded, he never was the same player in the NBA that he was in the ABA because all of the off the court stuff caught up with him. You know, he lost his, he lost that little extra something that he had, you know, because of that. I remember one time, Ryan, and uh, I decided that I'll wait till he does something good before I have another conversation with him. You know, maybe I'm doing this the wrong way you know, always screaming at him when he's doing something bad. So we play in Utah, and he has 28 points and 24 rebounds, and we beat Utah. And so after the game, I said to Marvin, when we get back to the hotel, uh, I need to talk to you. So come up to my room. We have a great conversation for the next two hours. Uh, 
have a couple beers. And we had, it was the best conversation I ever had with him. And when he left the room, he said, Coach, I know you're right, Coach. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it your way, Coach. We're going to be this. We're going to be that. The next day, missed the bus. We're headed to Denver. He, he's a no-show. He's a no-show in Denver. And about 3 o'clock in the afternoon of the game, which was two days later, I get a call. Uh, I'm in my room. I get a call, and Marvin said, Coach, how we doing? Well, well, what time's a bus leave for the arena? God knows where he'd been, <laughs> you know, over that time. But he shows up at the game and uh, did not play very well. <laughs> but uh, he he was an enigma. Uh, I was probably too young and too uh, too emotional to um, you know to be coaching him at the time. Uh, we had Don Chaney that we had picked up from the Celtics. And Chaney obviously was, you know, a really good defensive player and a wonderful human being. And I can remember Chaney telling me, he said, Coach, I've been in, I've been in pro ball 12 years, uh, and I have never seen anybody like this guy, ever, <laughs> that, you know, that acts like, uh, like this guy acts. But he uh, – it, it, it was a t- it was a really tough time for me because you know you want everything to be, you know just just the way you'd like it to be and and we had I had no other problems with any other player on the team but him just could never get him to do what he needed to do to be you know the type player that he could have been you know for us. What happened when you got fired? Oh, when I when I got fired. Uh, the uh, was over the um, all-star break uh, remember the all-star game where they in- introduced the slam dunk with Irving and uh, uh, artist Gilmore and Larry Keenan and uh, 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 David Thompson uh, George Gervin I mean they had some you know great dunkers but that that was the one that the slam dunk got introduced, and Dr. J won it by taking off from the you know just inside the foul line, and and to win it. And um, uh, I got a call, uh, you know, with about uh, oh two, two. There there were a couple of days left before the second half of the season started, and the, uh, 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 Harry Weltman. Uh, asked me to stop by the office and uh, said they were going to make a change. And, uh, and Joe Mullaney, uh, you know, replaced me and, uh, uh, you know, at that time. So that was, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was the reality of the coaching profession. Were you still the head coach when Maurice Lucas knocked out Artis Gilmore? I was not the head coach at that time. The Lucas, uh, uh, scenario with uh, with uh, Gilmore had actually happened the year before I got there, and um, you know Maurice was a tough guy and a very very good player, and he and Gilmore got in some altercation, and uh, Gilmore uh, Maurice was backing up, and Gilmore was coming after him, and they got over to the edge of the court, and there was no place else to go, so Lucas stopped and punched him and knocked him down you know he punched i I think artist was surprised (laughs) that he punched you know that he stopped and punched him but 
he knocked him down, which, you know, which led to the, uh, you know, to, to uh, Lucas getting the reputation of being such a tough guy, which he was. He was a tough guy, but a tremendous player. And um, I can remember Maurice uh, telling me that uh, we were, I, was, I used to talk to him about Marvin, you know, how, how can I reach Marvin? And he said, Coach, nobody can reach Marvin. You're wasting your time. <laughs> it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, he wasn't wrong about that. Okay. He was not not wrong about that. Did you know as this was all happening, like what level the merger would be? Because it sounds like in, in reading about all these different teams, different teams are either trying to cut costs so they be a better, you know, have a better chance, or they try to add players to have a better chance. A lot of it, I think, came down to just geography. San Antonio was a really strong franchise. Denver was a strong franchise. The Nets part of it with Julius Irving, and then realizing, like, okay, well, which which part of this is going to play out? Like, it felt like there were all of these owners trying to keep these things afloat to kind of win the merger lottery, knowing that more than half the franchise are going to be gone after it anyway. Uh, yeah, there, there had been. Uh, uh, you know, talks during the course of the season between the the NBA and uh, you know ABA owners uh, about a poss- the possibility, and you you know you would hear rumors about it, but but no one really, you know, no one really had any idea exactly you know what was going to happen. But if if you look at it, the teams that got into the NBA, with the exception of the Nets were all very competitive right from the start. You know, Denver, San Antonio, Indiana. Uh, the Nets were not competitive because Roy Bowe, who was the owner of the Nets, had to sell Julius Irving in order financially to get into the league. Had he not sold Julius, if Julius had stayed with the Nets, all four of those ABA teams would have been very, very competitive in the NBA. I want to end on this note because I know it's been talked about a little bit because you are the man that drafted Michael Jordan. I know you're aware, um, just to remind everybody. But how real was the offer of Dr. J for the draft pick that was Jordan? Uh, Philadelphia... Uh, you know, ha- had an interest in uh, in getting our draft pick. Uh, Philadelphia floated several different uh, scenarios with us uh, regarding that draft pick. Uh, none of them ever involved Irving at the time. Now, would they have done it if, if we had said, okay, we have to have Irving, I, I don't know if they would have or they wouldn't have, Ryan, but they never, he was never, uh, uh, his name was never brought forward by them to us during any discussions that we were having with, uh, with Philadelphia. Okay, wow. So that's, that's great because there, there's folklore out there that he was offered up and you turned it down. Uh, no, he, he wasn't, uh, I, 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 you know, had he, had he been offered, 
you know, that was something that we would have had to look at seriously because he was, you know, he was still a big time player at that time. Wow. That's crazy. Um, cause yeah, the, the way, the way it's, the way it's talked about, you know, every now and then there's stuff that's out there about it. It, yeah. it makes it sound like you sound better in the story than the version you just told about yourself, Rod. So I would, I would stick to the, <laughs> the stuff that's out there. <laughs> well, you know, with, 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 with Jordan, um, you know, I had gone to North Carolina, uh, after every year I became friendly with Dean Smith, uh, and he would let me watch tape of ACC games uh, so I could scout the ACC and also with, um, you know, scout his team. And I'm sitting there watching tape and Jordan is like, you know, I mean, he's like so much better than these other players athletically that it's like wow so you know i finished watching it's like five o'clock and i go up and sit down with dean and i said dean how good is this kid jordan he looks great on tape and he said i would never say it publicly because it you know it's not the carolina way but he's the most talented player we've ever had here and obviously they had some great great players um but you know, at Carolina, you know they play a certain way and they play a team-oriented game. And and he obviously was a great player, but uh, uh, you didn't see. I mean, anybody that can tell you they knew how good that guy was going to be is is uh, they would have to be more prescient than me <laughs> to do it because I, I, you know, at that time I thought he would be very good. But uh, but to be what he turned out to be, uh, you know, no way you could think that at that time. Rod, I can't tell you how much I, I appreciate your time and telling these stories. I think they're just great. And it, hopefully people learn some things today about the ABA and your career. So uh, can't wait to run into you again. All right, man. OK, Ryan, appreciate it. Thank you. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock. Hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time. Said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand. It's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Hulu Plus Live TV. Looking for a better way to watch live TV? Stream your favorite sports and shows on over 95 live channels with Hulu Plus Live TV. Get access to Hulu's entire streaming library, Disney Plus and ESPN Plus, all in one plan. Start your free trial of Hulu Plus live TV today. Live TV plan required. Restrictions apply. Access content from each service separately. Learn more at Hulu.com.
Seven to three is the score. NBA leads. ABA has the ball. Here is Don Freeman going inside to Artis Gilmore. And Gilmore puts it up over Wilt Chamberlain. Hall of Famer. Artis Gilmore joins us, and before he took his talents to the NBA, which is an awesome story in itself, uh, this is one of the most dominant college basketball players of all time. A reminder for some, just to understand, averaged 24 points, but 23 rebounds a game two years at Jacksonville after a JUCO start, and drafted into the ABA. So those first five years, before we go into this Kentucky run, Artis, can we back up just a little bit about the transition out of college you know, going to Chicago in the NBA draft, the ABA wanting you, throwing money at younger players. How did that all come about as you were making that decision? <laughs> right. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation and for an opportunity uh, to be with you today. But, uh, you know, reverting, actually speaking about those earlier years and, and, and that, of course, the transition from, uh, from the collegiate level uh, to the ABA without, I mean, there was no money. Now. I mean, I remember they spoke about uh, $15 a month. That was our laundry money. Uh, and half of the time that wasn't not available. But uh, moving forward, uh, I don't know if there was a whole bunch of guys. Moses Malone was the first player, I think, from high school before, long before Daryl Dawkins and uh, uh, what was that, Willoughby? Uh, what was Willoughby? I can't remember his last name. But those were the two individuals that initially was at the beginning uh, of the game. So were you in a position, because I don't, I don't know what the JUCO rules were back then, were you essentially, like, did the Bulls draft you just to draft you, but you still could have stayed in college? Or was it was it a strictly an ABA offer there that, that got you out of Jacksonville? Well, I didn't leave. I, I did not uh, depart for school as, a, as an underclassman. I, I uh, finished, uh, uh, graduated from J uh, Jacksonville University. But the reason I made the decision to, to uh, accept and go uh, sign with the ABA was because of the financial guarantee that would uh, allow my family in the event that I would have received an injury. That was the, 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 the point that was uh, impressed up, upon me and, and uh, sort of assisted, made, uh, assisted me in making that decision. And so were you surprised then that Chicago took you so late? Like what, what was the reason to have somebody with your resume go so late to Chicago? Were they, were they just assuming that you were going to the ABA? Cause that part of it is probably a little confusing historically. Well, probably that probably was, uh, the, the point of emphasis for them. You know, why use a high draft choice? He's uh, basically committed. He's going to be going to the ABA. So, uh, I would think that would probably part of their decision uh, to, you know, bring me in at such a high draft choice at the seven, as a seventh rounder. That first season with Kentucky, 71-72, your first year in the league, you go 68-16. and 16. Was it almost easy for you at that point? Because, you know, look, we can get to the fact that you, you lost in the playoffs right away, but how, how surprised were you that you guys were that good in the regular season with that Kentucky team? Well, before I joined that team, uh, they were really, really good. They had just uh, lost the, uh, it was a seven-game series against the Utah uh, Stars. And so that was a very, very good team. And uh, with the, my additional uh, 
a play as a member of that club, uh, certainly that elevated and, and allowed us to have uh, such a a great, great, great season. Allowed us to have that good season. So, what happened in the playoffs? The, the story was uh, Rick Barry and uh, John Roach. <laughs> the, Rick was something always pretty special. He was uh, he understood how to elevate his game uh, during the playoffs, and and certainly he was that was an indication. And uh, when he played for the Golden State Warriors and they won the championship in 1975. You have Joe Mullaney, um, then you make another change. It doesn't work out. How much of a difference did Hubie Brown make for the team? Uh, Hubie was, uh, (laughs) no pun intended, but a huge Hubie. Uh, change uh, made a, a terrific difference. You know his coaching style and the uh, the way he uh, informed the players was just uh, so different and really in a positive way. For for the example, and, and I'll, I kind of use this kind of a, as a as an analogy, as if you were, I mean, you come from a foreign country, you had no knowledge of the game. He does such a great job of just uh, breaking it down and describing it, and 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 he's able to uh, coach that. He was able to coach that. Had a tremendous skill with coaching it. You know, uh, whether you think about what happened at that particular time during the two years that we were at a coach, he was the coaching um, and, and uh, with the Colonels. Uh, you look at Hubie, the success that he had in the NBA. And uh, he ended up leaving the NBA for 20 years and returned and came back and was um, acknowledged as uh, the coach of the year. So uh, that that was just an indication that uh, Hilby did a great job of getting his uh, point across, a great coach. Every time anyone talks about you in the book, they're like, he's just so strong. Were you just stronger than everybody else? I mean, how did it happen? Obviously, you're an enormous human being, but it just, everyone was in awe of your strength. <laughs> Working in the watermelon fields and cotton fields when I was a kid, uh, I think that had a lot to do with it. But uh, I, I was fortunate that uh, I, I was, um, I developed the strength from, from earlier years working in the fields and certainly that was uh, uh was an asset for me and did you have ended up like a, a later growth spurt because i know that the legend is you wanted to play football instead and at your height that might not have worked out at the end no 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 uh, i i had a desire to play football but you know uh in those earlier years back in the uh um in the uh in the 50s, or late 50s and 60s, uh, the racial issues were uh, not only uh, created so many challenges for the schools that we attended, so that allowed them not, they didn't, there was not a budget for them to uh, purchase the equipment. Uh, you know, basically, they had the uniforms and they would keep those for years and years, you know, uh, uh, and uh you know, like your shoes, the kids were responsible for buying their shoes, purchasing their own shoes practically. And um, those was a combination. Those little things were 
a particle combination mean not being able to actually go out and play uh, play football. The ABA was always struggling financially. Um, Kentucky was obviously one of the better franchises, but were you ever dealing with, because I know ownership had changed over there, were you ever dealing with issues where players were like, you know, are, the, are the, these checks even going to clear? Because there's always stories about how you guys, as soon as you get the check, all raced each other to the bank to make sure you could cash it so it would clear. <laughs> yeah, I, I've heard I heard those uh, those uh, kind of uh, little uh, hearsays, but you know, I we had some good owners uh, in in, in uh, uh, Kentucky. Um, there was a number of individuals. Uh, I think they they gave me basically a, a personal guarantee in the event that the, the, you know the team fold that I would receive I would uh, receive my monies. Uh, uh, my, you know, the, the amount of my contract. Uh, as far as some of the other teams now, that was borderline, and I don't know Pittsburgh Condors and you know the Conquistadors and uh, the different other franchises. They there were financial issues, and I and I remember when the uh, Chaparrales moved to San Antonio, become the Spurs. But I go, always going to Dallas to fly into Love Field and and go and play the the game in Dallas. There was like you know a hundred you know one hundred people maybe uh, attending the game. But it was uh, certainly a change and and the excitement elevated once the franchise moved to San Antonio. Did you ever or other teammates have moments where you thought? You know, even though your franchise was more stable, you go to Dallas, you're, there's 100 people there, like you say, and you, you start thinking about the NBA going, did I make a mistake? Was there was there ever any of those con- conversations with guys going, you know, what are we doing here? No. I mean, it was really kind of weird that, uh, okay, the, the Floridians, the Miami Floridians, uh, you know, enjoyed playing down in Miami maybe about one year, and all of a sudden they, they vanished uh the Memphis Tams, and I remember Adolph Rupp was the uh, the GM there for a short period of time. Uh, uh, a number of things that was was happening, like it was developing on the move. Uh, there was, uh, I remember Dan Is was traded to uh, uh, a franchise. Denver? Uh, no, it was a Baltimore. They they had they had just. But the team never even developed, never uh, uh, evolved, uh, become a franchise, and it was just like a a bypass, Dan bypass, and on and on to Denver. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you got traded to Baltimore, but then they never even started. So right. then they they figured out some way to get him to Denver, um, right. which worked out for Dan because I, I know that he ended up spending a lot of time there. Uh, yes. Did you? Who did you think was the best player you went up against? Who was the most impressive during those early years in the seventies? Uh, I probably uh, Julius, and he was uh, such an advanced talent. And he was like, for an example, most guys like myself, I'm grabbing the rebound and I'm looking for the outlet pass to Louis Dampier or, you know, Dal Carey or whomever that was out. And, and But Julius grabbing the rebound right at the top of the key in his first step, he's sprinting the, the lid of the floor. So, he he created uh, different uh, uh, problems for you know players like myself, and even though we were not matched up center to center, he was a forward center. 
but Julius was uh, probably one of the most challenging players that I played against in the, in, in the ABA. But, uh, you know, Mel Daniels, he was, I mean, Mel Daniels at least two or three times the MVP of the league. So uh, he was, it was a learning experience for me. And, uh, of course, uh, Zelmo Beatty, you know, uh, Big Z with the Utah Jazz. I mean, he beat the daylights out of me because he was an experienced player. Came over from the St. Louis Hawks and, you know, he was a well-established player and he understood the game. So it was, it was pretty challenging, uh, the different players. And, you know, of course we had Caldwell Jones and, uh, who else was there? Um, mm, I, I used to call him, I can't, he, he played for the, the, the Nets, big, uh, heavy set. Big guy. We call him, uh, we used to call him the Wapa. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember his name right here off the bat, but yeah. What was it like going up against a, a young Moses Malone? Moses was a, a very challenging. He, he created problems for a young, thin, and quick, and he just, he understood how to, uh, he had a great understanding of the game, even at an early age as a high school player. I, I know that it was a, an incredibly physical league, um, and I don't know if this is a, a good topic, something you laugh about or you don't like talking about, but in the book, they, they talk about the time that you and Maurice Lucas got into it, and it, it, it appears that you didn't actually think he wanted to fight you because nobody wanted to fight you back then, correct? Well, I don't know. Most people that defend themselves and. And and that's what happened in Maurice Lucas. I just kind of walked up and not, and and whether I don't, um, whether I anticipate that we were just going to uh, stare each other down, but he, uh, apparently he thought I was coming with force, and he and he caught me with one, a real good one, and put me down. So uh, absolutely, Maurice was probably one of the toughest players in the league. Did you like that part of it though? Because when you when you read about it, the constant fights that are brought up as topics, um, and clearly you could hold your own. But did that take away from the game at times, or did you just use it to your advantage? Well, for the most part, it was just an advantage because I, I never, not at any time, ever looking for a fight. And I think for the for the most part, uh, like the NBA is now. Uh, it was there was controlled environment, even though there was not the media exposure. Whenever there was a, a difference of a, an opinion, but uh, you know, for the most part, yes, it was uh, that was a fun fun area to work in. You win that title in that second year with Kentucky. You had great records. I mean, it was it was a good team, as you mentioned at the top, and then they add you to the mix, and now you have Hubie becomes this legendary coach. What do you most remember about? bringing in a championship to a crazed Kentucky fan base? Well, it, it was long overdue, and I, I thought about the uh, the location and and what it meant to those those uh, uh, Louisvillians, <laughs> people of Louisville. It was, uh, it was pretty special. You know, and, you know, we didn't have any uh, extraordinary expectations as far as uh, I don't know what normally happens to a process like that, but uh, I was thinking 25 years later, uh, almost 30 years, 25 years later, 
we celebrate that uh, 75 1975 championship at the uh at the uh um Kentucky Derby the Derby uh happened to be part of that really was a great event the league is going to merge but then there's this dispersal draft Chicago argued that you still you know their draft rights to you 5 years prior still matter and then you ended up being kind of the first pick what do you remember about all of that because clearly chicago on the nba side was fighting to make sure they could get you at center well about just that uh i think the year before uh chicago had only won like 24 games you know and they they just had a bad team and coach uh i can't remember the coach uh we went to uh, washington um, but anyways, I was the first pick and, and, uh, Scott May was the second pick, you know, he was, he was that first round draft choice from college and Scott was, uh, a great player in college. And, uh, when he arrived in Chicago, uh, his first year, he ended up with mono. So he was out that year and the next year he tore up his, his knee. He was out for that year. And the following year after that. He, he he had problems with his other knee. So the first three years, Scott did not play with the uh, Chicago Bulls. What did it mean to you personally to, to go over, and maybe with all the other ABA guys that ended up having amazing careers, but you know, there's just going to be doubt, right? Oh, these guys aren't NBA players. Okay, whatever. And then you come in and you immediately produce. You end up being a Hall of Famer. How much pride did you take in that, that really the, the transition wasn't as tough as everybody thought it would be? Well, uh, apparently, uh, my first year in Chicago, we were did not have the kind of success. Uh, initially, we excelled at the very end and really turned things around. Uh, but it, it was it was really truly a struggle in Chicago because uh, every year we were not doing very well, and and they would make just some changes. I remember when Bobby Wilkinson came through, we really accepted, we picked it up. Reggie Thiers played very well. And right after the end of the season, Bobby uh, Bobby Wilkinson ended up, ended up leaving one year. So, you know, we did, our personnel, we didn't have one player. Uh, I think we had Mickey Johnson and Reggie Thiers end up making the All-Star game team uh, once, I think, maybe twice, I don't know. Uh, but we never have that collective group of individuals that we need to be very competitive, consistently have that competitive uh, spirit in Chicago. Well, wherever you went, the team succeeded. And uh, I know at the very end, you still loved playing basketball. Uh, remember watching you run around with the Celtics there at the end, and then you went overseas and, and just a guy who was uh, an incredibly accomplished life in the game. So, hey, I thank you very much for this. And uh, I look forward to having all this uh, kind of bring back some memories for you guys. So thanks. Well, thank you very much. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
Bounce pass down low for Gilmore. Knocked away, loose on the floor, and stolen by Marvin Barnes. More hands to D'Antoni. D'Antoni swings to Barr. Down low, Marvin almost lost it. Time running out on the shot clock as he puts it up, and no good. Nice move, but it wouldn't drop. A rebound taken by Gilmore, and a foul that could be a backcourt foul. And it is against Marvin Barnes. As just off to our left, Joe Mullaney yells, No, Marvin, no, and then sits down and says, Why, why? I think he's really saying, Why me? Could be. Bob Costas is one of uh, the biggest voices and faces in sports television and has been for a long time. And it's a real joy for me to get a chance to catch up with him. And the reason, as we know, we're talking a little ABA here. And Bob, what I love about this, um, your story, your start at Syracuse, which is where I do want to start. I love that your annual salary in in well, the early 70s was the same as mine at my first job about 30 years <laughs> later. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know who did worse, but well, um, I, I think then adjusted for inflation, I might have been doing slightly better, but it wasn't like either one of us had a lot of spare cash at that point. No, it's it's tough when you're back at your apartment and a lot of the stuff is turned off and you're doing the math on how much it's actually costing you to go to work every day as opposed to uh, how much you're putting away. Right. Um Let's let's go back to that. Syracuse, you'd been on the air up there, and the story, it's almost like you were the first auto-tune, and that's how you got the job. Oh, yeah. Um, my roommate for one year at Syracuse University, a guy named Roger Holstein, little aside, he was the guy who started WebMD. One of those great ideas where once somebody has the idea, Everyone else goes, why didn't I think of that? That's the most obvious thing. But Roger started WebMD, uh, which was way ahead of the curve with the Internet. Uh, All the things that are wrong with the Internet, something like WebMD is one of the things that's great about the Internet. Uh, So Roger has done better than both of us combined. I assure you that. But the reason why I bring his name up, he was a big basketball fan and his cousin. Harry Weltman was the president and in effect the general manager of the Spirits of St. Louis once the Carolina Cougars moved to St. Louis and they were owned by the Silner brothers. And that's another story which I'm sure we'll get to. And Harry, who had been around sports in New York, was a huge Knicks fan, had worked for NFL Films, had played some college basketball. He becomes the president of the Spirits. And so even though Roger's life's work lay in a different direction, as a guy in his early 20s, he said, yeah, I'll take this offer to work in the front office for a while. It'll be fun. And so within the first few days of his being there, he says, hey, my old roommate from Syracuse is a really good young sports broadcaster. He should apply for this job. So he calls me and I say, Roger, this sounds great. But these games are on KMOX in St. Louis. I knew that. I was a student of broadcasting and the whole landscape. They're on KMOX, a 50,000-watt radio station, the flagship station of the Cardinals. Jack Buck, Harry Carey, Joe Garagiola, later Gary Bender, on and on. And, of course, Joe Buck, eventually. Uh, One of the most storied radio stations in the country. They're not going to hire a 22-year-old kid. He says, look, I'll at least make sure that your tape is heard. So now my next problem is, do I have a tape of any basketball work that I've done? This is back in the era, Ryan, of reel-to-reel tapes that you had to splice through a thing that went round and round and weighed like 200 pounds. So I find a game 
that I'd done between Syracuse and Rutgers on the campus station when I was a sophomore. And I listened to it. And it's not bad, but it's certainly not KMOX quality. But then I think again, and there are about a dozen sequences that are actually better than pretty good. The problem is they're not all actually sequential. So I take them and I edit out the parts that I think are a little rough. And I alternate Syracuse with the ball, Rutgers with the ball. If there's a reference to the score that doesn't sound quite right, it's out of, it's out of chronological order, then I just edited that out. And then I re-recorded it with the bass slightly up and the treble slightly down so that I would sound a little bit older and a little bit more authoritative. And I sent it not to KMOX and not to the Spirits. I sent it directly to my buddy, Roger. I later found out that there were some 200 applicants for the job, and they all submitted those kinds of reel-to-reel tapes, most of which were sitting in a box in the Spirit's office. Harry Weltman went out to lunch, and Roger took a big tape recorder, one of those woolen sack tape recorders, put it on Harry's desk, threaded my tape through it, queued it up, and when Harry walked back through the door before he could sit down, he said, listen to this. And he pushed the button and Harry said, Hey, this guy's pretty good. So I became one of the four or five tapes that they forwarded to Jack Buck, who was the sports director at KMOX. And they had a few others that had come through the station and Jack listened to my tape and he liked it too. And so they called and brought me in for an interview. I was 22. I looked like I was 11. In fact, when I met Jack, of course, I was awestruck to meet the great Jack Buck, his first comment was, looking me over, how old are you, kid? And I said, I'm 22. And he said, I have ties older than you. And then he turned and walked out of the room. And I'm thinking, well, this isn't going all that well. <laughs> but, but I guess I misread it. He liked me. The guy who ran the station liked me. And they hired me for 11 grand a year to do the Spirits games. And that was it. That first year, how many times do you think you may have lost your job? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, we're on a podcast, so we can speak freely here. First game is on a Friday night, and the Spirits are at home. Their first two games were home games at the cavernous St. Louis Arena, where the Blues played the sellout crowds, where they contested at least a couple of Final Fours, but where the Spirits averaged maybe 3,000, 3, 3,500 fans a game, and sometimes less than that. And maybe there were 5,000 for the first game. Spirits have a big lead, um, and it slips away late in the game on Friday night. Two nights later, they're hosting rookie Moses Malone and the Utah Stars. And they're ahead by five or six with about a minute and change to go. And they call a timeout. And I turn to Bill Wilkerson, who's the analyst on the broadcast, and I think things are going swimmingly. The initial reaction to the Friday first broadcast is, Wow, this is great. You're a, you're a young Marv Albert, blah, blah, blah. Maybe they were overly enthusiastic, but I'm, I'm walking on air at this point. And this broadcast, the second one seems to be going well with only about a minute to go. And I turn to Bill and I say, Bill, the spirits seem to have this one well in hand. But Coach Bob McKinnon taking no chances here. The last thing he wants is a repeat of Friday night's blowjob. And Wilkerson looks at me. His eyes get as wide as saucers. The engineer, 
veteran guy named Tom Barton, who had done Cardinal games forever with Jack Buck. He looks past Wilkerson and makes that universal symbol of like rotating your finger around and around, like just keep going, just keep going. And now my heart is in my throat because I realize what I've said. I complete the broadcast and I'm completely crestfallen. I'm just thinking I'm done. I'm back in Syracuse tomorrow. I got two broadcasts and I'm going to get fired. But the station manager liked me and he said, you know, be more careful, whatever instructions he gave me. And uh, I was a little immature, I guess, because then I made another mistake. Uh, We were embarking on a road trip about a month or two later. And at that point, I didn't have any money. We've discussed that. I didn't have any money to begin with. I wasn't making all that much money. All of it was going to rent. Uh, There was nothing to save. Um, I didn't have any credit cards. And so I counted on my weekly paycheck. And I didn't even understand that I could have an expense account or anything like that. So it's a Friday morning. And I go down to the station in downtown St. Louis, right by the arch, to collect the paycheck before going to the airport to catch the flight. The teams didn't travel on charters then. They were commercial flights. So I grabbed the paycheck. But now the bank is closed. Who ever heard of a bank that's closed for lunch? But they were closed for lunch. So I had to wait for 45 minutes to lay open. I cash the check. And then I hop in my Ford Pinto and I drive to Lambert Airport in St. Louis and I get stuck in traffic and the plane leaves without me. But there's another flight a couple hours later and it's only about a 45 minute flight to Memphis. Well, then it starts to rain and it's a big thunderstorm and the plane is grounded for a while. Eventually, I get to Memphis, but I don't get to the arena until about six minutes into the first quarter. And Harry Weltman is sitting right behind what would have been the broadcast position, and he is fuming. It's almost like one of those cartoons where you can almost see the smoke coming out of somebody's ears. And at that point, I am absolutely certain that I'm fired, and I will deserve to be fired. But Harry also liked me, and after he cooled off, um, he was not in favor of booting me. But I remember that after the game, Back at the hotel, a lot of the players were gathered in the lobby area. And Marvin Barnes, trying to be helpful, learning of my plight, said, bro, bro, I just want you to know, if they fire your sorry ass, I have a backup plan for you. Because I've been looking for a little white dude to drive my Rolls Royce. And I'm thinking how, how immensely thoughtful and kind. And I could picture myself with a little chauffeur's cap you know, and driving Marvin around St. Louis, just as, just in case things didn't work out. So the next game was in San Antonio, but there was an off day in between. And Robert Highlander ran KMOX, summoned me back. So it's 6 a.m. the next morning. I'm on a flight back from Memphis to St. Louis. I walk into his office and he says, I have every right to fire you and I should, but I think you're more stupid than you are irredeemably irresponsible. If anything like this ever happens again, don't even bother to come down to the station. Just go back to Syracuse. That was all the warning I needed. Nothing like that ever happened again. But within the first two months, I'm thinking this promising start to my career is going nowhere. Let's talk about Marvin. 
what was it like being around him? You know, Marvin was like, in many respects, he was like a miniature Muhammad Ali, not miniature in size. He was six foot nine, but you know, like a lowercase Muhammad Ali, not nearly as profound a figure, but charismatically funny. You couldn't stay mad at him. Talk about irresponsible. He was self-destructively irresponsible on pure ability and you having some background with Providence and that whole Big East type situation, you know, Ryan, that he was a legendary player at Providence, teammate of Ernie DiGregorio. Uh, they went to the final four one year um, and had a pretty good chance of, of winning it. But Marvin was hurt in the semifinal game. Otherwise, Providence might well have faced Bill Walton and, and UCLA in the final. But in any case, Marvin was the second player taken in both the NBA and ABA draft after only Bill Walton. That's how highly regarded he was. I am certain that had he stayed on the straight and narrow and been injury free, he would have been among the 50 greatest players that the NBA named in 1997. He and Moses Malone were both rookies, same year, 1974-75, and it was Marvin Barnes, not Moses Malone, who was the rookie of the year. There were nights when he got 50 points and 25 rebounds. He averaged around 24, 25 points and close to 15, 16 rebounds, something like that as a rookie. He was an electric player. There were nights when the Spirits played Dr. J and the Nets, and Marvin Barnes, not Julia Serving, was the best player on the court some nights. But Marvin couldn't hold it together. He wound up associating with some very unsavory people. It's a wonder he lived as long as he did. Uh, some of the dark alleys that he went down during the course of his life. But you couldn't, you couldn't stay mad at him very long. And the, the story that people most often want me to reprise happens during that first season. We play the Kentucky Colonels in Louisville. Artis Gilmore, Dan Issel. Louis Dampier, who was an ABA legend, Hubie Brown was their coach. They won the ABA championship that year. So we play them and we lose. And the next morning we gather at the airport. Again, no charters, taking a commercial flight. And the trainer, who doubled as the traveling secretary, hands out the itinerary. And it says, TWA, flight 305. Depart Louisville, 8 a.m. Arrive St. Louis, 756. And Marvin beckons me over, puts an arm around my shoulder, looks down from more than a foot above me, brandishing the itinerary. And he says, bro, bro, do you see this? And I said, yeah. He goes, well, I don't know about you, but as for me, I am not getting on any time machine. Now, when, when I first tell that story, people assume if they didn't know anything about Marvin, well, he must have been dumb as a rock. On the contrary, he was, he was irresponsible, but he was quite bright. And he knew that what he was saying was funny. And he just wanted to make sure he, he said it to someone who would get it, which I did. You know, one of the stories that you tell in the book that I really love about Marvin, and it, it's, you know, there's so many other ones where he would eat the worst food and then just go out and score oh. 40. Um, you know, if he were early to practice, he'd wait in his car outside and make sure he was late. And people were just like, what? And then, you know, Rod Thorne had told us a story where he's like, I finally complimented and talked to him after a great game. 
And we felt like, you know, we had a couple beers. He turned the page and he was like, everything's going to be different. He's like, and the next day he missed the bus. So, you know, he oh, was yeah. one of those guys, you feel like he couldn't help himself. But what I loved was, I think there's a story is you're trying to figure it out because this is your only experience. And you're like, is this normal? And he's complaining to you that the reason the team's losing is because they're not a team, right? And he's saying, we're yep. not a team. And you're thinking, oh, wow, this guy's really opening up to me. And then essentially he complains that, I mean, I want you to tell the story and not me tell it, but complaining that people weren't looking out for him in the most selfish way possible. Yeah, he would often, like during the timeout, um, lean over and ask the statistician how many points he had, how many assists he had, you know, that kind of thing. So he goes into this seemingly enlightened spiel, and I'm his audience, bro, you know what our problem is? We don't get the concept of team play. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. For example, yes, I had 48 points with three minutes to go tonight. Do my boys get me the ball so I can get to 50? No, they do not. That illustrates what I'm trying to tell you. Oh, I see, Marvin. Right. I got it. Because <laughs> it's set up. You set it up so well in the book, and you're like, oh, well, this is this real breakthrough moment. And then as soon as I go, right. oh, no. Oh, wait. And you're like, okay. Uh, did they ever, <laughs> considering, you know, demographics, age, access to money, you're on the road. Did they, this isn't in the book, I don't believe. Did they ever ask you to go out with them? At that age? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Maurice Lucas, who I liked very much, he was the opposite of Marvin Barnes. Maurice was not only responsible, he was mature and responsible beyond his years. Uh, He kept a close eye on his money. He didn't suffer fools gladly. He knew that Marvin was uber talented, but he was disdainful of them because he didn't have the proper work ethic, et cetera, et cetera. So we played in San Antonio one night that first year and Maurice liked me. And he said, I know a place that's open late. Let's not go back to the hotel and call room service. And he takes me to some place that was a combination restaurant, but also like a disco, you know, that was a a deal in the seventies, you know, with with girls in, in go-go boots dancing around, but it was also a restaurant. Okay. And it was mostly seafood, right? And one of the items on the menu was Zairean oysters. Now, I never eat oysters. I don't like oysters. It's probably the only time in my life I've ever had oysters. But it was only a, a month or two before that, that Muhammad Ali had beaten George Foreman, where? In Zaire. Okay. So I say to Lucas, in honor of Muhammad Ali, I'm going to order the Zairean oysters, which I did. What ensued was the worst case of food poisoning that you could ever possibly imagine. And again, we're traveling. We go from San Antonio. The next game is in Salt Lake City and we're on a commercial flight. And I'm pulling that air sickness bag out of the, the seat pocket in front of me. And the whole team is laughing. And Lucas is greatly amused by the whole thing. And on top of it, because, and you can check Maurice, he was a terrific player, uh, helped Bill Walton uh, and the Trailblazers win the NBA title over Dr. J and George McGinnis in the 76ers in 1977. Lucas was a terrific player. He never shot three-pointers. I don't think he made more than one or two in his entire career, ABA and NBA. And 
although I couldn't play really, I could shoot. I could always shoot free throws. As long as no one was guarding me, I could shoot. So I challenged Maurice to a three-point shooting contest after practice one day. And he thought that I'd be an easy mark, but I beat him. And I beat him out of 10 bucks. And he peeled off the 10 because he was an honorable man, but he didn't like it because he was very careful with his money. And how did he get even? That night, in addition to being on the scene when I ordered something that made me have a near-death experience with food poisoning, when I got up to go to the men's room, when I came back, he left and he stuck me with the bill. So he's he's making, you know, probably 150 grand. I'm making 11 grand. I still had to pay the bill. And then in the morning, he's laughing about that because he got the better on me. And now he's doubly laughing when I'm doubled over, you know, in a window seat and coach heaving. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. How much of a storyline, it's just amazing reading about it because it felt like an East Coast hockey league where it's like, hey, we got this player and he fought him and this guy beat this guy up and then this happened. Oh, yeah. And I know that people think they know, but you just can't find it. I mean, this league is a mystery. What was the fight storyline like basically being a part of every game? Well, a couple of things here. Um, my first two jobs, when I was still a senior at Syracuse, I'm doing games for the Syracuse Blazers of the old Eastern Hockey League, the actual league that the Paul Newman movie Slapshot is based on. I knew guys who were extras in the movie. And the character in Slapshot, Ogie Oglethorpe, is based on Bill Harpo Goldthorpe of the Syracuse Blazers whom I knew. Um, and that, as crazy as Slapshot was, it wasn't any crazier than the actual Eastern Hockey League. My next job is the Spirits. By the time I'm 24 years old, I've been to the circus, the zoo, and everything in between, and I had not that much to compare it to. You know, Joe Buck grows up around his dad, you know, and, and around the Cardinals and around broadcasting. I grew up dreaming of it and watching games on TV and listening to them on the radio. I have no real experience by the time I'm 24, except these two crazy things. And it's only in retrospect that I realized that the first two professional experiences I had were unmatched in terms of just craziness of anything that ensued in the next 40 plus, 40 plus years. Um, so in the ABA, uh, there weren't as many fights as in the Eastern Hockey League, but there were fights. And there were guys who were legendary. Um, Cincy Powell, uh, um, who, Wendell Ladner, Wendell Ladner, who no one wanted to tangle with. And you know, Ryan, this is true. Um, size and strength are one thing, but all things being even close to equal, it's the crazy guys that you don't want to tangle with. The guys who actually like to fight and who don't care, you know? Um, and and uh, Wendell Ladner kind of fit in that category. But Maurice Lucas comes into play here. He had to guard Artis Gilmore on many occasions. And Mo was maybe 6'8", and Artis was 7'2". And the only way that Mo could guard him was to get beat him down the floor and try and get some kind of position and then jostle him so that Artis couldn't get 
too far inside. And Artis actually is a pretty mild-mannered guy. But long about mid-third quarter this night at Freedom Hall, he'd had enough. And he turned and advanced toward Lucas. And this is all happening right in front of me as I'm broadcasting courtside. And the court at Freedom Hall was actually laid down on top of like a a dirt floor. Because they use Freedom Hall for a variety of things. Tractor pulls, rodeos, concerts. So if you backed up far enough, you'd fall off the elevated floor and into the dirt. So Lucas, who was a very tough guy, still didn't really want any part of Artis Gilmore. And Artis is moving toward him menacingly. And Mo backs up a step. He backs up a step. And eventually he's cornered. If he goes back one more step, he's going to literally fall off the court. And in a moment of desperation, he plants his feet and pops Artis right on the chin. And down goes the big A. He just crumples to the floor. If it was a cartoon, those little birdies would be circling (laughs) over his head to indicate he was out. And now, Lucas, having landed this blow, goes berserk. Like, let me at him, let me at him. And everybody has to hold him back. And word of that spreads around the league. And nobody wants to tangle with Maurice Lucas after that. It made his reputation, a reputation that carried over into the NBA when he was the only one willing during the NBA finals to tangle with Daryl Dawkins of the Philadelphia 76ers and his willingness to do that helped to turn that series around. The Sixers led the final two, nothing. Um, and at that point, the momentum shifted and the trailblazers won the next four games. Um, one of the things about the ABA Ryan is that I really think it's the last major sports league that has any element of real mystery and legend about it. You know, the word legend is tossed around in sports. You know, Michael Jordan is many things, but he's less legendary than Satchel Paige or Babe Ruth, or for that matter, Wilt Chamberlain, because almost everything that Michael Jordan or LeBron James or Tom Brady, whoever you want to name, almost everything they did of any consequence, we saw. And it's, it's all archived. We've seen it a zillion times from a zillion different angles. But with the ABA, it was mostly word of mouth. Most of those games weren't on television. So when Maurice Lucas pops Artis Gilmore, that's not on SportsCenter, which didn't even exist then, but there's no equivalent of it. It's word of mouth that gets around the league. And when Julius Irving performed some of his greatest flights in the ABA that people didn't see, you know, my version of it, as I saw it from my vantage point, might be different than Rod Thorne's version of it. That's what legend is. The Dr. J of the NBA was a great and important superstar player. But the Dr. J of the ABA was a legend. That's the part of the book I I enjoyed the most. And as I was sitting talking to Dr. J, you're trying to figure out the way to ask a question where you're, you're thinking like, how can I ask Dr. J what it's like to be Dr. J? He's less impressed with it than all of us are. But you still want this moment because there's just so many excerpts in the book where there's just these reactions where guys, because Dr. J himself was so off the radar as a prospect and being at UMass. And the first time people would see him, they'd go, what the hell is this? Like, who is this guy? And I think it's mm-hmm. important that you bring up that this version of him is likely better than the NBA version of him. Yeah, he was great in the NBA. 
but in the ABA, he was just something else again. And he carried that mystique with him to the NBA. He's largely, not solely, but largely responsible for the merger. You know, he was as big a star at that point in the mid 70s as anybody the NBA had, just about. And um, the NBA wanted not just to eliminate the, the bidding war and the competition, um, but they, they wanted to bring Dr. J into the NBA as much as they wanted to bring the, the four franchises, the Nets, the Pacers, the Nuggets, and the Spurs. They wanted to bring Dr. J into the NBA. Uh, there were lots of really good players in the ABA. Um, 10 of the 24 players in the first All-Star game post-merger had played in the ABA. Half of the 10 starters in the first final post-merger had, had been ABA players. But Dr. J was the symbol of the league. And people, when he wound up on national television with the 76ers, um, or when he came to NBA arenas, there was this whole idea of, we got to see this guy in person. We got to see how the, the reality matches up to the legend. The business side of this is, is really important because it felt like Every time a franchise was ready to fold or move or whatever, they'd get a new round of funding by the next group that's like, hey, the merger's just down the road, <laughs> you know, and, and there's all these yep. guys going, I'm not buying this team because of any reason other than I want to have that piece of paper once this merger happens. How prominent was that as far as the decision making? And just, I mean, look, that's a bigger part than the games itself as the league tries to figure out a way to survive and potentially make out financially by merging with the league. Yeah, there was always the idea that somewhere down the road, there's a merger. Uh, the last season of the ABA, 75-76, the season begins with 10 teams. When it's over, as they limp to the finish line, there are only seven. And three of those seven, the Kentucky Colonels, who only a year before had been the champions, the Spirits, and the Virginia Squires, who were always operating on a shoestring. I mean, players missed many paychecks. They'd go a couple of months without being paid. It was not uncommon for a team like the Squires to show up uh, at a road destination, check into the hotel, and the management wouldn't give them their keys because they hadn't paid the bill from the last time. That was the circumstance. Not in Indiana, where the Pacers were a flagship franchise. Not in Denver, where they were playing to huge crowds, not in San Antonio, which wasn't doing as well at the gate as Denver, but was still getting, you know, nine, 10,000 a game and not in on Long Island, which is where the, the Nets played where Dr. J, even with Dr. J, they didn't draw like the Knicks drew at Madison square garden, but they drew enough and they had a local television deal. Those four teams were in a different category, uh, than, than the others. Um, and the, the idea was, from the NBA standpoint, they may have thought we can just bleed these guys dry. You know, we'll just wait for the whole league to collapse and then we'll sign whatever players, uh, once they're scattered around, we'll sign whatever players we want. But then they saw the opportunity to take the four franchises that were viable, which they did, and then figure out how to eliminate without having to go through litigation, eliminate the other three which leads, as you know, Ryan, to one of the great stories, not, a, not only of the ABA, but one of the great stories in the history of sports business. Well, that's the TV deal. Is that what we're talking about here with St. Louis? Yeah. 
the Virginia Squires were in such desperate financial straits that they were able to be uh, bought off. And John Y. Brown, uh, the one-time governor of Kentucky, wanted to be in the league, and they let him buy into the league with uh, the Buffalo Braves, perhaps, and the Celtics might have been involved. I forget exactly what it was, but they let him come into the NBA. And the players from the Spirits, the Squires, and the Colonels were put into a dispersal draft, and the players were ranked according to their abilities. And so maybe Moses Malone, if if some team took Moses Malone in the dispersal draft, then uh, the Spirits, which was Moses' last team after Utah had folded, the Spirits got $750,000. And maybe Marvin Barnes and Maurice Lucas were worth $500,000. So that was part of the compensation. But the owners of the Spirits, or their legal representatives, had another idea. Uh, they said, listen, if we were to get in, wouldn't we be part of the network television contract? Wouldn't we share in the network television contract? Yeah. Okay. So maybe each team at that point was getting five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars $600,000 a year from network television, which was CBS. And their main concern is we're at the finish line to getting this merger done. Dr. J's coming in the league. We're getting four franchises. We're getting expansion fees. This is all good. We just have to make sure there's not an antitrust suit looming over us that these other three will go away and leave us alone. And the spirits owners say, okay, well, there were seven ABA teams. If we were to be part of the league, wouldn't we be entitled then to one seventh of whatever the four teams that are getting in would receive? Yeah, I guess. All right. So you don't have to pay us off. You don't have to give us $3 million or whatever it took to get the Squires to go away. Just give us that share of the network television revenue. And then here comes the key clause in perpetuity. Why the NBA ever agreed to that? I don't know, but pretty soon that five, $600,000 a year became tens of millions of dollars a year for every team. Larry Bird and Magic Johnson were coming. Michael Jordan was coming right behind them. The explosion of network television, the dream team, sports marketing, Nike, the NBA on NBC. And so now the network television money is a bonanza for every team. The difference is that all those teams have overhead. They got to pay for their arenas. They got to pay the salaries of the players and everything else. All the former owners of the spirits have to do with no overhead at all is walk to the mailbox in effect and collect their annual check. And over time, this was worth hundreds of millions of dollars to, to the former owners of the spirits. And eventually, uh, the NBA, after years of trying to somehow entice them, offer them something to close the thing out and eliminate the in perpetuity. And they began to realize this is now international rights. Uh, and what if, what, what if eventually there are games being shown on Saturn? Do these people and their heirs collect that money as well? And I think they had to pay something like half a billion dollars just to tie a ribbon around the thing and have uh, the Silma brothers say, thank you. We're satisfied now. Have a good, have a good rest of your life. Slightly better deal than 
half a million dollars for Marvin Barnes. It was unbelievable. Like I had read about it. I had known about it. And then you're right. It's about a half a billion. They had to cut them up front before the last ESPN TNT deal, which was massive. It was almost yeah. triple. So I'm sure the league was like, look, we got to cut this check now, get rid of these guys before we start doing, because the TV deals have, have been even astronomical since the settlement. Um, your, your job in all of this is still to try to keep this going. What were some of the biggest challenges uh, despite you know the the shoestring budget and you learning this i mean you have a passion for it it's become your life but what were the biggest challenges cuz i know that they had some odd pairings and they tried some different things with you on the broadcast well on the radio side um a great guy since passed away named bill wilkerson was my partner uh, only on home games because KMOX didn't want to travel anybody for the road games so i did the road games by myself and a handful of games were on television there might have been 10 or 12 on television they were simulcasts, like Chick Hearn used to do with the Lakers. So you're talking too rapidly for television, but you have to do it for both radio and TV. So that was a challenge, but I enjoyed it when I was 23, 24 years old. Um, in the second of the two seasons, um, one of the sponsors uh, was enamored of Harry Weltman's wife, Arlene, who was very knowledgeable um, and very well-spoken. And Arlene had been a halftime guest of mine on one of the televised games. And the sponsor said, hey, why don't we have Bob pair with Arlene and she'll be his color person on the broadcast? <laughs> well, there's a big difference between being a likable, attractive, knowledgeable, well-spoken guest and all of a sudden being the color person slash analyst alongside a 24-year-old kid who's calling the games. So this was not, let's put it this way, this was not the equivalent of Costas and Doug Collins. It was not the equivalent of Marv and Mike Fratello. It was not the equivalent of Mike Green and Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson. It was something well down, well down the ladder from that. The ultimate test there when you're when you're working with the owner's wife um, on the broadcast. Yeah, you know, and luckily, and this is the, this is what it was. We were such close friends, all of us. I was often at Harry and Arlene's house, and Roger, who I mentioned earlier, who had played some high school basketball. Uh, we'd be playing pickup games in in the backyard. It was like a spirits family. Um, and again, as I said before. I guess I realized it was kind of loose and crazy, but I didn't realize how loose and crazy because I didn't have enough of a frame of reference to compare it to. It was only as the years went by that I realized that this was unique, a word that's often misused, but it was truly unique. I want to finish this way because there, there's such a sense of pride, not only in your voice, um, but everyone I've talked to about this, to see Dr. J light up, to be like, thank, and then thank me at the end for going, hey, I want people to keep understanding this. For those that want more information, droppingdimes.org is a foundation to try to help um, the surviving ABA players that are in need. And, you know, the NBA has talked about doing some different things here. Um, whenever it comes down to the money and the business side, we understand, you know, these, these are not easy solutions, but if you wanted to donate, they should get on some sort of licensing agreement to get some of this gear out there. Because I'm telling you, the, the rarity of some of these jerseys and the shorts and the t-shirts and the hoodies and all this stuff, it would sell because it's so cool. It's so unique. It's very seventies. 
Um, yeah. All of this stuff is great. So I did want to mention that, but I, I think I would close in that. I don't know that something that would be this, I, I, we can't call it a failure. It isn't a failure. I mean, the dunk contest, the three-point line, all of the things that they were doing, the way they were going to battle with the NBA, that they had a real thing here. But there's an incredible sense of pride for something here that I, I think is very important to keep alive. Yeah, Ryan, it's a fraternity. We had a 50th anniversary get-together, which appropriately was in Indianapolis. Uh, they won three of the nine ABA championships. They carried the banner into the NBA. Well over 100 former ABA players came from not only all over the country, but some were living in Europe or whatever, and they all came to enjoy one another's company once again and to swap tall tales. And there's a tremendous sense, not only in, of pride in terms of how the quality of the league was misunderstood. There were a lot of really good players, many of whom, Ryan, became household names in the NBA. Dan Issel and George McGinnis and Moses Malone and Artis Gilmore and, of course, Dr. J and the Iceman, George Gervin. But then there were players who, whose primes were over and who either never played in the NBA or they were injured toward the end of their ABA stints or they had very short NBA careers because they were toward the end of the line as players. But guys like Freddie Lewis and Roger Brown and Mel Daniels, who were so great uh, with the Pacers, James Silas, Captain Late, so nicknamed because of, of how many clutch shots he made for the San Antonio Spurs, teammate of, uh, of George Gervin, blew out his knee in the last year of the ABA. One of the best players I, I ever saw, at least of, that era, Jimmy Jones, Willie Wise, Mac Calvin, I'm leaving people out, uh, that the essence of their careers was in the ABA. And so while they might have been well compensated compared to the average person in the 1960s and 70s, they didn't make enough money to be independently wealthy, and they didn't have the fame that the NBA would have brought to them. But those of us who are part of the ABA, we know, we respect it. We appreciate it. And we also care about the guys who fell through the cracks. If you've played any length of time in the NBA, you've got a pension. Not only the handsome salary you likely made, but you got a pension. There are a lot of ABA guys. Their numbers are dwindling. Just in the past few months, Goo Kennedy, Bird Averett, and George Carter have all passed away. Um, the numbers dwindling. Uh, but there are, there are ABA players, most of whom are doing just fine, some better than fine, but there are those that are having difficulty. Uh, they can't pay their medical expenses. Sadly, when some pass away, they need help with their families need help with the funeral expenses, whatever it might be. And so the dropping dimes foundation helps these people out, but at the same time, respecting their dignity, um, not naming them, just doing what, what they can to help them get by. But here's the irony of it. And it's easy to say something like this and spend somebody else's money. But if all 30 NBA teams, if each of those teams took $100,000 a year out of the petty cash drawer, fine money would cover it. $3 million a year would fund that pension in perpetuity, because by attrition, a lot of these guys are passing away as the years go by. 
$3 million a year wouldn't be enough for these guys to live lavishly, but for those who need it, it would give them a chance to live with greater dignity and take care of their basic expenses. And just looking at the picture of all the surviving members, again, it's droppingdimes.org. It, uh, it hits you too. You know, you, you can see um, there, there's some guys that need some help. So I'll make sure I donate as well. And hopefully those listening to this uh, also Thank make you a for donation. That. Yeah, of course, of course. Very easy to do because the, these guys have provided, you know, foundation of the entertainment that I've spent a lifetime uh, making a living on. So I know that it was a weird start for you. It's been a great run. <laughs> that's, that's somewhat understated, but I also know that St. Louis is home for you. So it, it's kind of cool that, you know, you start with the spirits of St. Louis, see how long this goes. And it also, you know, no, I'm, no matter where your career took you, it was, uh, it's, it's your home base as well, along with New York. So it's, it's been yeah, really cool to catch up with you. It's, it really is a huge part, not just of my career, but of my life. And if I went on at greater length than I usually would, it's just because I love talking about the ABA. And I know that a podcast is different than a telecast or, or a radio broadcast. So you get a little bit more room. So I, I hope I didn't wear you or your listeners out, but it's a subject that's still close to my heart. Not even close. You can, I, was, I didn't want to take up too much more of your time. So I, I really appreciate it. This was awesome. Thanks a lot, Ryan. Take care. I hope everybody enjoyed something we're trying to do a little bit different here on the podcast with these ABA stories. I'd urge you to go out and check out Loose Balls. We didn't even come close to covering it all. I mean, I could have just kept doing these interviews over and over again, but eventually wanted to get them out. Uh, The book is a lot of fun, and it's a lot of fun for, I would say, even though I don't feel younger all the time, a younger audience in comparison to what the ABA was like. And I was going back asking my father about a lot of this stuff. When you just learn about a Connie Hawkins and go, okay, wait a minute, was this guy really that good? Because I remember running into Hubie Brown once going, Hey, what about this guy? What about that guy? And then he just stopped to be like, now Connie Hawkins, the Hawk, man. He's like, this is what you had to understand. And he just kind of set you straight on it. Now there's tons of video out there where you can find some of this. I watched the Nets and Nuggets finals game where the Nets won it in six games and they were down huge. I watched the whole game uh, with Dr. J out there, Dan Issel, a bunch of other names as well. But when you think about the players, as I said at the start of the first podcast, all of these players that it was like, okay, is this guy really that good? And the ABA was paying money supposedly up front. Um, that wasn't always the case, but the numbers that were announced are a lot more. So they had a big time influx of talent and a lot of younger talent. I mean, we'll just run through the names. Rick Barry, Hall of Famer. Zelmo Beatty, who I had all sorts of appreciation for after the fact because I didn't know that much about him. Roger Brown. Uh, Billy Cunningham, who I knew more as a coach with the Sixers, Louis Dampier, Mel Daniels, who was incredible for those Pacers teams, Julius Irving, as we mentioned, George Gervin got his start there, Artis Gilmore, who we had on, Connie Hawkins, Spencer Haywood, whose story is incredible in itself, is his transition is, you know, they came up with these rules of hardship to try to get guys into the ABA while the NBA was watching this going, what are we doing here? Dan Issel, Moses Malone, my second favorite NBA player of all time, George McGinnis, who had an unbelievable story even getting into the league, Charlie Scott, David Thompson, on and on and on. There's one thing that I want to close on here, and that is the NBA is so specific about its culture, right? When you think about the NBA, there's just something about it that's a little bit cooler than the other leagues, whether it's the sneakers, the connection of music, the performance part, the, I would say, the individual part of it, which I know can turn some people off a little bit, but there's something about being an NBA star that I think culturally is different than any of the other sports. And however you define culture or what you think it is when you see it or don't see it, I think the NBA is a really easy thing to understand. It's just a little bit different. It's got a vibe about it that's cooler, that's better, that's that's better for consumers. And the origin of a lot of this NBA style, whether it was Jordan wearing 
unbelievable gear very early in his career and the way he played the game. A lot of this stuff dates directly back to the ABA, where they went out and played more of a playground style. There were more individuals. Um, there was an up-and-down style. The dunk, there's just all of these players that kind of stood out where an old-school basketball mentality looked down on what these guys are doing when, in fact, what they were doing was kind of laying the foundation for what the game was ultimately going to become in the NBA. And I'd like to close on this. If you have it in you and you enjoyed these podcasts, please donate to droppingdimes.org. You can go to droppingdimes.org and check out what they are doing with the Dropping Dimes Foundation for ABA players. And I know they would appreciate it. So I hope you enjoyed this week's podcasts. Thank you.